Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And this is Thursday, January 26th, 2017. Good afternoon to those in the Western time zones. Good evening to those in the East. And I guess it's tomorrow for those in Australia and New Zealand who listen in. Joining me as co-host tonight is Charles Marshall, attorney in California, along with our guest, Bill Padalo, who has been a frequent guest on the show because he does some incredible work as an investigator stemming from his training and experience as a private investigator. Welcome, Charles and Bill. Thank you, Neil. Great Good to be back. Again. So before we get to the meat of, of one of the things that we've got on the agenda tonight, I thought I would point out an interesting series of articles on Navient who administrates student loans. They got sued by the FTC for doing it wrong. Um, again, no criminal charges, but basically what they did was they were steering people into default by telling them to stop paying, just like we've seen with the foreclosures. And they were steering people into arrangements, just like we've seen in foreclosures, on threat of uh, foreclosure the next day or ruination the next day, uh, where the <clears throat> amount due ballooned out to an amount that they couldn't possibly afford. So I might just start looking at those student loans soon, but I still have a lot of work that I want to do on the foreclosures and mortgages. Just stop making those payments, they say. Why would they tell people to stop making payments, you might ask? Why would any creditor tell the debtor, don't pay me? The FTC says they guided people into loan paybacks where the amount, the students, uh, where the amount owed uh, ballooned far beyond their ability to pay, and uh, under terms that was impossible given their income, when there was a ready, available plan, just like we had with Hamp and Harp, et cetera that was income-based as to the student loans 
and w- they never would have had uh, any real default. Why would they do that, right? Don't these people understand that they'll never make any money by killing the borrower or stopping him or her from paying? And the answer is, of course, yes, they understand that very well. And their reason is simple, just like the banks with the foreclosures. They are making a lot more money sending people into defaults than any amount of money they would make by a traditional workout. By returning a so-called loan, which isn't really a loan uh, in, the, in the mortgage business, um, they, uh, by, by returning a, a so-called loan uh, to performing status, they risk two things. One is they're not going to make as much money as they, uh, they want to make, and two is they'll be vulnerable to paybacks um, and repurchase agreements and various other things that will essentially eliminate the amount of money that they made doing these loans. It's funny, though, that the FTC is steering clear of the real issue, even though it has sued Navi for bad servicing practicing practices that resulted in unnecessary losses for everyone other than Navian. The idea behind telling people to stop paying is very simple. When they stop paying, there is a credit report sent out that thus ensures that the borrower, if you want to call them that, uh, cannot possibly refinance and pay off the debt because they have a significant hit on their uh, credit report. So nobody else will loan money to them. So that locks the borrower into a downward spiral that they can't get out of and results in foreclosure in home loans or a failed loan in the case of student loans. So if you look at that and you assume that these people are not idiots, what they want, obviously, is failed loans. So why do they want failed loans? Because it stops investors who put up the money in the uh, in the case of virtually all mortgages and much of the student loan market. Um, it stops investors from poking around to get their share. In fact, by creating the servicer mayhem with fabrications and forgeries and lying and all that, any inquiring investor is certainly not going to want to be tied into a deal that was defective in all respects and which violates lending laws. Chase had that issue in which it was claiming ownership of the loans, but it was saying the loans they got from Washington Mutual, but it was saying that they wouldn't be liable for lending violations, and they ended up paying fines and things like that. So the game continued. They pretend to be servicing borrowers to work things out when the whole time they want and they need loan failures, foreclosures, and write-offs of failed loans. A couple of weeks ago, we were discussing with Bill Padalo 
decision out of the Supreme Court of the state of Montana, uh, which was long overdue. Uh, in that case, uh, driving a stake through the heart of Bayview Loan Servicing and inferentially City Mortgage. And the hidden issue raised by table-funded loans is going to continue to drive more and more successes by borrowers who confront uh, strangers who are pretending to be lenders or creditors. <clears throat> it seems to me that eventually people will start questioning the original loan and realize that when something is dead, it stays dead and pretending that it is alive won't bring it back to life. Assigning a dead loan that, frankly, was never alive is the hallmark of the players who are foreclosing on people's homes by creating more paper and then more paper relying on the other pretend paper. They give the impression to judges that the greater weight of the paper is the greater weight of the evidence when all of it is a house of cards that is based literally on a lie, which is one of the reasons that back uh, 10 years ago I named my blog Living Lies, and we have uh, another site, Lending Lies. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is specially brought to you <clears throat> because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call our number, 202-838-6345, which is our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. This is very time-consuming, what we do, and the preparation for it is even more time-consuming. So, Charles and Bill, we're going to start off with the case that Bill just came back from uh, in California, where the attack by the homeowner was or is on a void assignment executed by the infamous and notorious Linda Green from DocX. Uh, Linda Green has literally been put out to the farm, which is where 60 Minutes found her, and she wouldn't say much of anything. So, Bill, why don't you tell us a little bit and give us the foundation of what we're talking about here with that case? Sure. Thank you. Um well, you know, I hate to say it, but it was one of the more simplistic cases that I've actually been involved in. I was contacted by uh, counsel for the borrower uh, early December who 
uh, said, listen, I've got a case uh, where the only thing I want you to come in and talk about is uh, and render an opinion on is one document, one assignment of deed of trust. And that document, of course, is Linda Green through DocX and a uh, pretty notorious name there. And I said, it's, uh, that's, that's it. You don't want me reviewing any other documents pertaining to the title or anything? He says, not at all. He says, what our strategy is, is we filed a very simple declaratory action uh, to expunge this assignment as void and fraudulent um, on its face. And, and that's it. That's, that's the, the four walls of the complaint. Uh, this had, had nothing to do with foreclosure, nothing to do with defaults. It's simply uh, putting that document before the court and, and, and having that court expunge it based on it being a, uh, a, a fraudulent forged document. And so, you know, I, obviously I uh, got involved in the case and uh, came down for deposition in, earlier this month. And uh, lo and behold, I, I come into the conference room for the deposition, and there's literally a dozen, you know, eight-inch binders, you know, laid out on this conference room table and stacks of thousands of documents in preparation for this deposition. And, and it was kind of, uh, well, it wasn't really surprising, but, you know, I sit down and, and through close to four hours of being deposed, they questioned and grilled and wanted to talk about everything under the sun except that assignment. And they were, you know, trying to get uh, admissions about the debt and uh, admissions uh, about all kinds of things for me, which I wasn't retained to speak of. And I just simply said, listen, I was just retained to talk about this assignment and that's it. Well, we come to trial, uh, you know, leading up to this uh, case, um, uh, the servicer uh, who was representing a, uh, an option one vintage series trust uh, was denied summary judgment on two occasions. And uh, so the trial came and it was earlier this week. And so uh, I went down to Oakland and Alameda County uh, for, for the trial. And uh, it was pretty much, you know, the same thing where, they really tried to make this a, a dog and pony show um, and use all kinds of distractionary techniques and arguments and everything under the sun except dealing with this particular assignment. And so we actually went through almost a two-day trial on just one assignment because virtually everything they brought up, all the witnesses that they marched in, they marched in four witnesses people from Deutsche Bank as the trustee to, you know, the servicer reps. I mean, everybody under the sun, they went through their uh, bag of tricks trying to uh, distract the court from the sole issue that we were there to discuss, and that being uh, that assignment. And uh, so it was, it's a very interesting strategy um, on, on behalf of the borrower in that um, the deed of trust, uh, the argument is, is that uh, – I guess I should step back. The opposition really did a, uh, a, an extensive argument to say that this homeowner, the borrowers, cannot challenge assignments, literally no matter what. And they tried to say that because this was securitized into a trust, this assignment could not be challenged about the timelines or any of that thing. And, and none of these issues were, were before the court. We, we weren't making securitization fail arguments or none of that. Um, 
and they were saying that the homeowner can't has no standing to challenge. Well, the deed of trust language specifically states in there that borrowers, uh, there's a covenant, borrowers' covenants, that they will, uh, they have a duty to defend the title to the to the property. And so, therefore, that's all this borrower is essentially doing is simply challenging that assignment as a cloud on the title. And uh, so, anyway, uh, you know, a very lengthy, lengthy trial. Um, the servicer obviously went off tangent many, many times and in lots of different directions. And I think the the judge um, it, it was, you know, understood that they were going down lots of paths that were irrelevant to the complaint before him. But um, at this point, the, the case is under advisement, so hopefully we're going to uh, see a positive result here in the near future. Um, I wish we had an answer, but the fact that it's under advisement, I think, is a good sign. Well, that's, that's interesting, and it is a viable strategy, just talking as a trial lawyer and Charles, you can uh, get in here on on that basis. Uh, yeah. To, you know, you've got a hundred arrows in your quiver, but you know you're not going to be able to use all of them. So why not pick one and just run with that one? Yes, there's a risk in doing that. Um, and clients don't like that because they want to feel like everything has been aired uh, uh, rather than uh, a razor-sharp focus uh, on, on just one issue. But I think the lawyers, you know, are on to something there, and depending upon what they did in their opening and closing argument, uh, they may well... Uh, uh, have a win on their hands. They certainly survived two motions for summary judgment. Um, uh, interesting that they deposed you for four hours. I can recall, uh, and I think uh, several people who are listening to this program already know it, that back in 2008, I was deposed by 16 banks for six days, nine to five. And Interestingly enough, they never had that transcribed, nor have they ever challenged, and I think this is true for you too, Bill, uh, there has never been a challenging affidavit or declaration to any of the ones that I have filed, and that's probably true for you too. Um, well, I think yeah, the, I think it, 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 it's interesting ahead. that when you when – you, just bring up the challenge part of it, not just uh, uh, to my deposition, but in this particular case and the closing arguments is that throughout the two-day trial, they never once rebutted any of the testimony or our position that the assignment was indeed uh, fraudulent and uh, forged. In fact, out of all the witnesses they brought forth and all the arguments that they made, not once did they deny it and not once did they did they say, I that that assignment's legitimate, and here's why. Uh, they completely avoided it at all costs, but at the end of the day, um, no denial. Yeah, well, that's very powerful. Yeah. That's very, that's very powerful. Ahead, what really, yeah, what strikes me about this case 
as much as anything else, is that by framing the entire case and pleadings around this one issue, you step outside of the uh, the, the kind of foreclosure law culture, so to speak, where it just gets folded into another pre-foreclosure lawsuit. And the fact that there has not even been an NOD generated makes this literally a test case, a la Ivanova. However, because you weren't suing with the conventional causes of action and basically framing this from the get-go as a foreclosure action, it got litigated, I think, in a more properly developed and properly vetted way, meaning there weren't a lot of preconceptions on the part of the judging. And because there was a lot of specific, it sounds like pretty high level, detail of analysis and explication of that analysis, you know, for trial and in the deposition, all that when you add that up is a big deal. Because if this were part of an overall foreclosure case, you would have heard from the other side, test case Ivanova, which I don't know whether the other side mentioned Ivanova in your depositions, but that's basically what they were saying by saying that you don't have standing uh, because, the, of course, the argument would be you don't have standing because if you might even possibly have standing, it would only be in a post-auction case, which this clearly is not. And the other striking issue about that is there has been some case law that's built up in California that absurdly treats these kinds of uh, failure to engage in the bona fides of an assignment, meaning California law and the law in all 50 states and the law at the federal level. I mean, this is just Anglo-American law related to declarations, which an assignment is a kind of declaration, in, in, in fact. This goes back hundreds of years. I mean, you you have to, in all these states, including California, show that you reviewed the evidence, showed that you were both empowered and had the knowledge to sign off on the specific document in front of you. And unfortunately, with robo-signing and even fraudulent signing of foreclosure-related documents, even like here where the case is in foreclosure at the time, Unfortunately, in a lot of those cases, the judges are buying the opposition arguments and saying, well, the borrower still doesn't have standing to challenge this because it hasn't gone to sale yet, the subject property. And also, well, at best, you could say that these assignments are voidable, not void. And the only parties to challenge the voidableness would be somebody who's probably connected in an institutional way to one of the parties benefiting from this stream of assignments. And what's really striking here is by streamlining the case, you got around all that and you you got past the motions for summary judgment, which is strong in and of itself. I mean, this is a pleading path that other attorneys need to follow. I am certainly going to look into it myself. Well, you know, it was <clears throat> the way he framed with the witness taking, you know, when the witness testified in the case, um, you know, the witness clearly said, listen, I'm not denying that a loan took place at some point in time. I'm sitting here before the court saying, I don't know who I owe this money to. And 
that was sort of the the connection to you know saying <clears throat> that this i mean they worked very 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 hard to get some sort of admission some sort of stipulation anything that that they were owed the debt and they wanted some they wanted that that borrower they wanted me they wanted somebody in that courtroom to 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 make that link and that connection uh, so that they could come back and say, you know, argue voidable. Uh, as long as they're saying, as long as, you know, we own the debt or they admit that we are owed this debt, then then it's a voidable assignment at best and we can recorrect and fix that or so on and so forth. But but the posture from, from day one is, uh, and, and, you know, Al West, by the way, who was the attorney on the case out of Redondo Beach, did a fabulous job. Um, you know, he argued and, you know, even over and said, listen, they said, the court said, you know, people don't owe a debt to the world at large. They owe it to a particular party. And there's a reason why they resorted to manufacturing these types of documents and polluting them into the public record. Um, and we're simply saying that that's clearly a fraudulent document. It clearly uh, has no business being in the record, needs to be expunged. And we're simply saying, let the real creditor, whoever that might be, come forward at some point. But that's not the issue before the court. And the servicers tried to even make arguments into the future. They were saying, Your Honor, if you grant this declaratory judgment, then you know what this means. They're going to come back for a quiet title, and you can't let them do this and that. And they, I mean, they started you know, moving 10 paces ahead or whatever in the chess match. And you know, Al West jumps in and says, What, we're going to argue now about future events? I mean – he really, I mean, and, and they did, they brought up Saderback, they brought up all the cases saying, you can't challenge this assignment. And again, under that way of thinking, under that logic, what they were really trying to convince the judge is, whether it's a foreclosure matter or not, homeowners have no right to challenge an assignment on their property no matter what. And that is a very dangerous proposition in my view yeah and clearly oh, by the way, clearly the, the the i mean the case basically as you're describing it is hey i'm the owner of this property and i've got a blight on my title that i want removed because it's a fraudulent document and um clearly if that is true, that it is a fraudulent document, the relief granted would be a declaration from the court that that uh, so-called encumbrance, that document is removed from the chain of title. So the other interesting thing about this is that uh, I assume uh there's been a substitution of trustee in that case um the uh what comes to mind is the jacobson uh, uh versus bayview loan servicing case in which the court found that uh the substitution of charles peterson as trustee was then logically also invalid because the party who did the substitution of trustee was the recipient of the void assignment. So they didn't have any right to do it. And then the question 
that comes up, which uh, is related to my uh, introductory remarks, is why not use the old trustee on the deed of trust? And the answer to that is very simple, because I've spoken to these people. The old trustee in no way, manner, shape, or form is willing to take instructions from a party who merely says that they are the beneficiary under a deed of trust but can't produce any evidence uh, to that effect and is unwilling to warrant it. And so they must, that's why all these cases that go into foreclosure always have a substitution of trustee. That didn't always, that, that wasn't always the case. If somebody failed to make their payments and a foreclosure was proper, the trustee sent the required notices out and it was done. But that was back in the days when the loans were real. That was back in the days when they weren't passed around like a whiskey bottle at a fraternity party as was uh, reported, uh, I can't remember his name, uh, at msnbc.com. Uh, uh, but his analysis was that uh, uh, all this paper is just a ruse to confuse the courts and to confuse borrowers and to confuse the attorneys for borrowers. And we have to admit here, among the three of us and our audience, that they succeeded in confusing all those people. Love well, that analogy, Neil. I have to say I love the analogy on the uh, whiskey. Uh, the other thing that really strikes me about this is the defendants in this case are absolutely right. If this ruling goes down in favor of the borrower and becomes essentially a judgment for plaintiff on behalf of the borrower plaintiff, then if any foreclosure activity of any kind is ever brought, then not just hypothetically, but by law and per law, that foreclosure activity is subject to being shut down at the front end based on this void assignment because you'll have a judicial ruling on this that will be raised judicata to any party, including a servicer or purported securitized trust holder bringing uh, a foreclosure action in the future. So it is very powerful, and that's why the defendants are up in arms about it. But I do love the, uh, the streamlined, uh, laser-like focus of this. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a great sniper-type strategy, but where, where I think that they're really concerned on all of this is that, <clears throat> and it, you'll probably find some humor in this one, but uh, I think they're nervous about the consent judgments, number one, because LPS, DOCX, these, these parties went in and signed consent judgments that they were going to mitigate their damages and go back and, and uh, not advance these old, stale, fraudulent documents that they put forth. And if they had knowledge of it, that they had to come forth and try to uh, correct the, the problems, notify the borrowers or whomever. And clearly, 
the fact that they were advancing this assignment or got caught with it anyway at this point in time, I think they're more concerned about being hit with a consent judgment violation. And it was interesting because you know, they bring in a Deutsche Bank vice president as one of their witnesses. And you know, I'll kind of paraphrase, but one of the questions was, well, are you aware of, of the national phenomenon that, that came about called the robo-signing scandal, which ultimately led to uh, the consent judgments and the $25 billion AG settlement? And the answer was, no, no, not, not aware of it. And then you don't recall, you have no knowledge that consent judgments were signed by LPS and DocX, that, uh, that they were to stop and cease using these or uh, create, you know, the fabricating these assignments. You have no knowledge of that? Mm, no, no, I'm, what, you know, what's that all about? <laughs> so it's pretty insulting. I think the judge's head just kind of like snapped back there for a second, was like, really, you're expecting me to believe that? Uh, yeah, anybody yeah, in the industry know that. The, you know, and, and the other side of this is, if you take a few steps back and ask the question, if the original loans and the current so-called creditors were real, why would they have a problem with this? If that If that were the case, they would come to court and ask to reform documents or whatever because they could prove, look, we loaned this guy money or uh, ABC owned this guy money and we bought the debt. Here's the transaction. We're the creditor, but there's a problem with the paperwork. We need it fixed. That's done in every state. But they are not going into court asking for that, except in very rare instances. And the reason they're not asking for that is that they don't have a creditor to bring forward. If they were to tell the actual investors whose money was, was used for all these deals what was going on, those investors would be outraged by what was done with their money at the time of loan originations because they weren't uh, uh, supposed to be in deals like that. And if the investors were told what's being done with foreclosures, which is let them sit idle for years while servicer advances, so-called, pile up, so that the master servicer can then claim on liquidation of the property the proceeds of the liquidation of the property. That's, that's theft, in my opinion. That is theft from the investors using the homeowner as a pawn in that scheme. And that's really where the real focus was in all of this but it's still not being totally absorbed by everyone because it's all counterintuitive. How could there not have been a loan at the beginning? You know that there's some evidence anyway that money exchanged hands. How could, the, uh, uh, how could somebody be claiming to be a successor to the original lender and not be 
a creditor. But in fact, that's the truth. The original loan, the original so-called transaction was really basically a meeting at which a sham transaction was done and the borrower was induced to, in, in, in many cases, not all cases, but certainly the vast majority of cases, the borrower was induced to sign paperwork in favor of a party who not only didn't lend them money, but was not representing the investors whose money was being used. And last point, their actions were against the interest of those investors. There's a bunch of reasons there why the original so-called loan documents were just plain lies. And if you, and I've said this many times to people, that if you look at all the wins that have occurred by homeowners over the banks, it's basically driven by one premise, even if they didn't realize they were adopting the premise. And the premise is that the loans never really existed and there is no creditor now because what they what what the intermediaries did was they created a void by not letting the borrower know the true identity of his creditor the lender and not letting the creditor know the identity or the existence of the borrower so that creates a void, and the banks walked into that void, and they said, okay, we'll be the lender, and that's when the game started, because as the lender, they could sell the loan, you know, 500 times if they wanted to. Well, I, I don't think anybody sold it that many times, but certainly Bass Stearns was leveraged 42 times, and, you know, the the purpose of these foreclosures is to protect those who, let's say, sold the, the loan in one form or another 40 times, if you have a $200,000 mortgage or supposed mortgage, $200,000 loan, and they sell it 40 times, they got $8 million for it. If they get a foreclosure, they get to keep the $8 million. If they don't get a foreclosure, they have to account to all the investors. Anybody who has seen the movie or the, the show the producers will understand full well what they were doing. They were selling more than 100% of something in the hope that it would fail and nobody would ask for an accounting. So getting back to this case with Bill, my interpretation of it is that they're striking at the heart of the strategy of the banks because instead of marching in four witnesses and piling up binders and things like that, they could simply have come in and said, look, judge, there may be problems with that assignment, but we are the creditor. Here's the proof. We want, we're counterclaiming for reformation of, of, of that document and allowing uh uh, us to claim the assignment because in fact it occurred it, the loan was purchased 
whether it's a holder in due course situation or just uh, a new owner of, of non-negotiable paper if it was in default at the time of the sale, they wouldn't have a problem. Isn't that your take, Charles? Absolutely. Uh, this brings to mind the legal principle of race, race ipsa loquitur, which we, we attorneys all learn about in law school. And basically yes. it says when you have a, a series of events and you can't explain or the explanations that you come up with seem convoluted and complicated for why party X engages in behavior Y, when you apply that to this case, what Neil just said is a given. The fact that they didn't do that, the fact that these defendants did not simply show up into court with what amounts to proof of title, what amounts to showing through the original note or even other some kind of finessed intermediary document that California courts might sometimes accept. The failure for that to happen is itself strong evidence that they had no other option but to put on a dog and pony show, as Bill accurately called it, and just create a, a massive, you know, sort of paper ream of uh, distraction and, you know, dissembling to keep people's eye off the ball of what, what really needs to go on here, which is this assignment is bogus and therefore under California law, and frankly the law of any other jurisdiction, should be void. Yeah, you know, it's estimated they spent about $60,000 uh, defending this declaratory action thus far. And one of their witnesses, they brought in a law professor from uh, somewhere out there in California. They were, you know, he's charging $850 an hour, and he takes the stand and literally talks for you know an hour and a half about everything under the sun except that assignment. I mean, they grilled me and said, well, you didn't interview Linda Green, did you? Well, no, but you know, certainly with all that money, uh, you certainly could have flown her in her yourself and had her take the stand and, and uh, vouch for that assignment, or you should have had, you know, been pretty simple to come in and prove that uh, that was legitimate. But it clearly, um, it was very, a third grader could have set foot into that courtroom and understood what the issue was and could have clearly deciphered what what they were trying to do, and that's just throw you know throw in these diversionary you know hand grenades and everything else to create a distraction the entire time, and that's all it was. Right, and giving the uh, giving the expert you were just mentioning that kind of deference, that is very emblematic of the term I use for that, which radio listeners who've heard me will know: institutional bias. It just happens all the time. I mean, one. One side issue, I know we're running out of time, but one side issue which I will raise real quickly, and I'm, I've, I've been putting this into my lawsuit because a lot of these cases now, you have, cons you have consent judgments. You have federal uh, consent decrees with all these uh, major institutional players like Deutsche Bank, like the various securitized trusts of U.S. Bank. People need to use those, whether they're in pro per or whether they have attorneys. 
they need to appeal and refer to those types of judgments in their legal lawsuits where the defendant is the same defendant with those consent decrees because it will make a difference. It's, it's it made a, a That's difference. That's a wrap. Yes. All right, gentlemen, Bill Padalo, Charles Marshall, for being on the show, and we'll be back next week. Yes, we will. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.